this is Tony. And this is What Did We Miss? The podcast where we explore our pop culture blind spots one episode at a time. Hey. Oh, hey. Hey. Um, are you a fan of Steven Soderbergh? You know, uh, short answer, yes. Long answer, he's got a lot of stuff I haven't seen. I've mm-hmm. seen Out of Sight. I've seen Traffic. I've seen Contagion. I've seen, well, I've seen what we're talking about today. I've seen Haywire <laughs> for the express purpose of this podcast. Sure. But um, yeah, he's one of those you know, fascinating directors who really I, I was aware of sort of the, the, his name and, and the sort of uh, the cachet that came with him, you know, mm-hmm. especially, um, oh, I saw the first Oceans movie. Okay. And, you know, by, by that period, he suddenly had this entourage of every, you know, fantastic, big Hollywood star. Yeah. Uh, who just show up in all of his movies. Uh, but it really wasn't until I read, um, I read Peter Biskin's, um, Down and Dirty Pictures, mm-hmm. which he wrote, he also wrote, uh, Easy Rider, Raging Bull. Oh, okay. But, uh, Down and Dirty Pictures really looks at, you know, the sort of ascension of Sundance, Miramax, yeah. and the Weinsteins up through the early, the mid 2000s. Mm-hmm. And it was through reading that that I realized, oh, Soderbergh is a fascinating person. Yeah. And it seems like everything he does is sort of an excuse to try some new thing, whether it's a technique, whether it's a narrative device. Um, yeah. And it, it's just, um, yeah, one of those guys who I've been meaning to get more of his movies under my belt and just haven't got around to it. I can't say he's a favorite, but I'm always excited when he has a new movie sure. coming out. And I've seen um, probably the majority of his movies. He kind of burst onto the scene with Sex, Lies, and Videotape. Mm-hmm. You talked about Sundance, and really that was the first big independent movie that kind of broke out at, at uh, Sundance in 89 and kind of heralded the big uh, indie boom indie boom of the 90s. Yeah. Uh, and right after he did Sex, Lies, and Videotape, you know, he did a bunch of sort of under the radar passion project kind of things. And everyone was kind of like, well, he came out of the gate swinging and now what's going on here? Um, And that's uh, Kafka and and King of the Hill, which is actually, I think people have really come around on. Um, And then the underneath and Schizopolis, which are these kind of weird, again, independent movies where he's trying all these different things. And then he had uh, some success with Out of Sight which uh, you had mentioned, and mm-hmm. I believe that's an adaptation of... Yeah, Elmore Leonard. Elmore Leonard. Uh, and critics seem to love that, and I think audience took to it well, and it's a great um, it's a great kind of noirish movie with uh, wonderful performances by Clun- George Clooney and uh, Jennifer Lopez. Uh, so at that point, he started doing these sort of one-for-them, one-for-me kind of things. Uh, and that's when you get things like the Limey, which is this great sort of action revenge movie uh, with Terrence Stamp, and then Aaron Brockovich in Traffic, which you got a lot of Oscar love for sure. both of those big movies. prestige pictures. Mm-hmm. But with that, you know, Soderbergh special sauce on him. I yeah, guess. Uh, and then he followed that up with Ocean's Eleven, and this is when he's like in the pocket. All these big successes, 
And then he did Full Frontal and Solaris. And Solaris is a remake of the Tarkovsky movie. Uh, and it's a pretty weird movie, and I really like it. Uh, audiences did not. <laughs> um, and then he, you know, Ocean's 12, Bubble, which is another experimental movie. Ocean's 13, then he did Che, which is a two-part movie about Che uh, Guerrera. Um, and then he started going into this phase of, of, of knocking a bunch out in a year, and he did them quickly. So he did The Girlfriend Experience and then The Informant. Uh, Girlfriend Experience had starred... Sasha Gray, right? Sasha Gray, who's a porn star at the time, and she plays this high-priced uh, call girl. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he did The Informant, which is this true, uh, based on a true story uh, starring Matt Damon, and he cast everyone other than Matt Damon. They're all stand-up comics and, and improvisers and comedians. Sort of a straight story. Um, and then, um, you know, Contagion, which is actually popular right now because of the uh, coronavirus and it started popping up in all these social and all these um, streaming services as being people are renting it apparently because of what's happening. Um, So like there's all these little he's balancing all these different tonal things from comedies to to sort of um, these uh, dramas and 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 so each time he's trying something new he did like a plague movie he did broad comedy he did experimental magic mike magic mike um so in between all this he did this movie that called haywire and that's the subject of today's episode uh and basically he was watching um some mma which was i guess was on i think he said like cbs or something so they were like showing these these matches on on some pretty accessible channels and he saw Gina Carano and she was an MMA fighter and I guess she was one of the first uh, uh, of these kind of female MMA fighters that were at least had a little more public awareness I guess because she was a great fighter and so he decided to base this whole movie around her so he approached her and said like hey how would you feel about making a movie and she's like yeah of course why why wouldn't I want to make a movie with Steven Soderbergh which is wild to hear because she is the centerpiece Mm -hmm. she is the star of this movie yeah and surrounded by michael douglas channing tatum bill paxton uh uh michael fassbender Mm -hmm. um antonio banderas antonio banderas um ewan mcgregor McGregor. i mean she is far and away not only the least experienced the least qualified but the least name appeal. Yeah. And he built this movie with this superstar supporting cast around an unknown because he's like, this is going to be cool. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. That's great. That's what he does. I think a lot of times it's like this this idea that he's learning and he wanted to make an action movie. So he wanted to build around someone that was capable of doing action. Sure. So a lot of the fight choreography in this movie actually has some MMA moves in it. Yeah. They built that around it. And so she trained for, I believe, a, like six months or so because cool. she had to learn how to handle weapons and whatnot. Um, but before we get into it, why are we talking about this? I think I know why, but... I think we were looking for something because this is coming out around time between the new James Bond movie and the new Black Widow. Sure. Or the new Marvel movie, Black Widow. And... We wanted to find something that was sort of a balance of that spy, thriller, action, adventure movie. Mm-hmm. And I had asked you if you had ever seen Haywire. And 
um, and you hadn't, and it was a favorite of mine. And I think it kind of, you know, checks off all those boxes. Yeah. And I actually forgot that we had that conversation entirely. <laughs> and I, I had reverse engineered the thinking uh, because Gina Carano recently appeared in The Mandalorian Correct. as Cara Dune, who was the, um, you know, the sort of, uh, you know, grizzled rebel shock trooper who mm -hmm. became part of The Mandalorian's crew. Um, I believe that was also part of the conversation. Yeah. I think we were like, she was on the brain. It connected all these pieces from The Mandalorian, which is popular, to James Bond, which we didn't want to cover James Bond because we're both pretty familiar with James Bond. Um, and Black Widow, which again, you know, we didn't want to do any Marvel stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. And this was the thing. This was what got her out of, you know, not out of the ring, but like this is the thing that transitioned her from an MMA fighter to, you know, an actress. I mean, mm -hmm. she was also in one of the Fast and Furious movies and yep. I believe got some pretty good ink for it. Yeah, and, and when you watch this, like, she has a presence. She does. Yeah. Um, and I guess we could, like, briefly talk about the plot, um, what there is of it, because really it's unimportant. Yeah, she's a, you know, freelance black ops mercenary. Mm -hmm. she's, she doesn't work for the government. She works for one of those kind of like a Blackwater kind of contracting firm. Sure. And I think, um, you know, she gets kind of set up. Um and to be to take the fall for um, this hit, and so there she's kind of on the run for the bulk of the movie, mm -hmm. and it kind of the movie ninety minutes in and out doesn't really care about exposition, and it doesn't hold your hand too much either, and it kind of has like these big set pieces, yeah, all kind of fight sequences and, and chase sequences. And I think, again, like going back to Soderbergh, like he uses this as an excuse to kind of play around formally. Uh, and even within that, like the montages are shot a certain way and even the fight sequences are shot in a different way than from the montages. And then even like the kind of talking head scenes are shot in a different way. And he's moving quickly and he's being kind of playful with the whole thing. And I think maybe one thing you could say that maybe someone would say against this movie is that it's like, you know, style over substance but i think it's style is it substance sure um because these action sequences are so awesome right and they come at you in a way that's very upsetting yeah. that first one because we are introduced to uh gina carano's character in this kind of uh diner like mm -hmm. in vermont or something or upstate new york and channing tatum comes in sits down they have this brief tense exchange that you know is kind of keeping you at an arm's distance but you understand that they know what they're talking about and then he just slugs her in the face yeah he hits her in the head with a ketchup bottle that's what it was mm -hmm. but it is it is so extreme but then like they just get right into it and yeah. then it's like it's real like you know hand-to-hand -hand mercenary stuff yeah you know they these are two people who it's shocking because you see a man smash a bottle in a woman's face, but these two are, you know, they're, they're equals in terms of their capabilities. And, um, she gives often worse than what she gets in, in these fight scenes. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the biggest, one of the most interesting things about the action in this or the fight scenes in this is there's never any music. 
when they're fighting. No, it's just grunts and shit breaking. Yes. Uh, and typically, you know, it's similar to how we were talking about um, when we did an episode on Jackie Chan, where they're they're not really pulling punches. They're they're they are actually hitting each other. Uh, there's an extra there's a special feature on the Blu-ray, um, and it gets into kind of her training for it, and it shows a lot of the filming for her fight sequence with Michael Fassbender. And they have this this moment where it's the two of them fighting in a hotel room, and they're using the whole room Mm -hmm. where you know she wraps herself around him and pushes him into the wall uh and they they trade punches he smashes her through several glass shells she smashes a vase up against his head (laughs) um and it's a lot of kind of medium to wide shots um maybe like one two three punch cut so it's not rapid cutting because they're actually beating the shit out of each other right and when you're watching the extra features too, it kind of shows like how they're locked in and the camera moves back and they get a couple of punches in, a couple of kicks in, and they're like, okay, now we could cut. And then they reframe it what they need. So this isn't coverage for these action sequences. It's actually, you know, here's this beat, here's the next beat, here's the next beat. And I guess what they had did um, when she was training is they pre a lot of the action sequences. So they show some of that in the extra features too. It's great because it's basically just them in this empty warehouse with various ephemera around them, like tables and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And they're just filming it on like camcorders. So you see the same the same action sequence played out in practice. So each one of these shots, are it's all planned. But you feel these punches. Like you really feel it. It's, yeah. It's, it's brutal. Yeah. Yeah. But it's great. <laughs> Um, especially when she does like she'll like wrap her legs kind of like those moves that's become standard in superhero movies where you see Black Widow and Harlequin do yeah there's a lot of grappling yeah and she'll which I guess are a lot of MMA moves and then she'll just beat the shit out of them mm-hmm. she'll just punch them repeatedly in the face and um, in interviews Fastbender said like yeah well you know I'm 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 humble enough to say that she'll kick my ass and it's fine. You know, I'm going to, I want it to look good. And like, there are no stunt doubles. That's actually him getting the shit kicked out of him. So, and I guess they would pad him. So underneath his suit, he'd have like this padding in order to take some of these punches. But you know, there are moments where they're like, oh yeah, they, they could get really hurt. There's just a lot of planning involved mm-hmm. in order to make sure that they're, you know, they're not taking any serious damage. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that, that fight scene with her and Fassbender, it's great because each, you know, in in sort of video game parlance, there are these kind of boss fights, mm-hmm. and they do kind of come at the end of levels almost. And and uh, that fight is the culmination of, you know, very classic like spy movie trope where, you know, she's brought in um, to to pretend to be the eye candy, um, and he's a suave, you know, debonair, whatever the fuck, and they go to the they go to the party and they're both doing their own bit of spy craft and they come back to the hell, the hotel room and that's when all hell breaks loose. Um, similarly, the, the Channing Tatum thing feels like its own, you know, level where mm-hmm. they're in upstate New York, it's out in the, the woods in the wintertime. There's a car chase through you know, trees and shit like that. It, like you were saying earlier, the criticism was maybe it's style over substance. And, and I agree with you that I think that the style here is the point. Mm-hmm. He is sort of taking these, you know, these iconic visual shorthands for these spy movie standards. Yeah. And and just, you know, kind of uh, 
I don't know if we've talked about this before, but in the same way that when they make those Mission Impossible movies, Tom Cruise is like, I want to do the the following four crazy stunts. Mm-hmm. Build a movie around it. Yeah. This clearly seemed like I've got this this great new personality who has the physicality to do these kind of intense uh, hand-to-hand fight scenes. Let's play with all these, you know, let's do like the greatest hits of these kinds of movies. Yeah. And even, so there's a montage earlier on where um, Gina Carano is is chasing a guy through Belfast. Uh, and it feels sort of like this combination of 70s thrillers and sort of French New Wave. Sure. Because it's got this great 70s inspired soundtrack mm-hmm. where it's, you know, a lot of percussion, um, Percussion kind of drives it. There's not a lot of actual full drum kit, but you hear like a lot of kind of congos and, and shakers and whatnot with a bass kind of driving the yeah. whole thing and a lot of horns. And she's running through the streets and it will cut to black and white. And then it'll have like these cuts where there's almost like a blank spot there, like a blank, like a black frame. And you have to pay attention, but it's in there. And it's sort of this weird playful experimentation that you see in a lot of kind of the French new wave. And it's just interesting to me because like clearly he was just like, fuck it, let's play around. Let's see what we can do. And it's so great and expressive and not something you see in these type of movies because they have to be so safe because they're so expensive often. But because he had that clout, because he had all the success prior to this, he kind of built the movie that he wanted to make or that he wanted to see. And, and, And this was kind of like, and he was also like an early adopter to digital uh him and fincher were really big at the beginning of the whole digital the changeover uh this really it shows it shows um a lot of my one criticism of the movie is that it sort of has this at least for the first hour like this framing device where you know the movie starts off like you said in a cafe and then it flashes back and fills you in and i think that's sort of superfluous but he does kind of shoot those um, scenes that take place in the present, at least up until the hour mark, kind of like in a lot of blue tones. And all those scenes that were in the past were all like really, really yellow, like mm-hmm. that harsh digital yellow. Yeah. Um, he's sort of always embraced that. And Fincher has too. I think Fincher maybe handles it a little better. Sure. I mean, when I think of traffic, I just think of yellow. Yeah. Oh, exactly. Yeah. But, you know, that's almost become this thing that's so commonplace, that color grading, uh, and they were both sort of at the forefront of that. They were doing it before it became like this thing now where it's overdone. Um, But I think what the reason it kind of looks like that is because they're moving quickly. And the way he likes to shoot is, you know, he kind of previses all of it and then he gets what he needs and he edits it that night. That's why he likes digital so much because he can edit it. And he is not only the director, but he was also the cinematographer and also the editor. So he's really like shaping this this whole thing. It was written by Lem Dobbs, um, who also wrote The Limey. And okay. they, they had a pretty contentious relationship, I guess, with The Limey. He didn't like what Soderbergh had done to it. And he did a similar thing where he kind of chopped it up so it's like um, out of order. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's this great, if you can get a hold of the DVD of the Limey, there's a commentary track where they're basically arguing the whole time. 
it's so great, especially if you're interested in filmmaking. Uh, it's really worth listening because it's two people basically arguing why they made the decisions that they made. At that point, are they have they sort of mended their their bridges? Or I don't they... think so. Oh, okay, and I think it's surprising that he came back to write this one. Oh, okay, yeah, um, I'm not really sure what the fallout is, um, but anyway, uh, this has that similar sort of non sort yeah. of fractured structure yeah. to it. Again, I think it's a little superfluous in this. Yeah. Um, back to the to the digital photography. This The camera that they shot this on, you could probably buy for like four or five grand now, oh. which if you, you yeah. know, comparatively. I mean, it's still a lot, but. It's still a lot, but it's still like, you know, DSLRs cost that much sure. money. Uh, it's pretty crazy. And obviously like the lenses a lot of time are, are, are what makes these things right. so expensive. But he uses a lot of available light. And you could tell on this because, mm-hmm. uh, again, that's how you get those. Kind yeah, of, it does get kind of muddy. Yeah. Um, but it does look great. Like his compositions are great. And when he finds moments um, to set up a shot or augment it with some lighting, he, it's real impactful. Yeah. A lot of this stuff in New Mexico yeah. at the end. So uh, Bill Paxton plays her father. And when mm-hmm. she's sort of on the lamb from these people, um, she hides out there and the movie kind of climaxes in this you know, beautiful home that he lives in. But a lot of the shots in that yeah. final act were pretty stunning. There's this gorgeous shot where um, it's kind of the, the ending of that moment. And Bill Paxton, as you said, is her father. And, and she goes in to hug him and she has face paint all over her face. Uh, kind of like the military style face mm-hmm. paint, black face paint. And it's like a close up of her face. And you could see you know, his body behind her and he's hugging her and she's backlit by uh, the flame of a fireplace and the kind of like the the blue dusk light is kind of lighting her face and it's gorgeous. Um, and there's another great shot where she goes to confront Michael Douglas's character and it's a wide shot in silhouette in a oh, airplane they're in a hangar. hangar. Yeah. And she's just circling around him. Uh, it's so great because, and we talk about this a lot where that's that kind of filmmaking where the composition tells a story just as much as what's happening, mm-hmm. uh, 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 what they're saying. And I think that's the type of filmmaking that excites me so much when there's that much thought put behind not just what they're saying to each other, but they're blocking where they are in relation to each other, how they're moving and the framing of the composition. Sure. And there's a lot of that in this. And, and that's Soderbergh in general. Like mm-hmm. he's uh, always a student. Um, and I think that's why he kind of excites me because like you never know which Soderbergh is going to show up. Yeah. So earlier I, I uh, very enthusiastically said, you know, how great it was that he he found this unknown screen talent, built a movie around her and, and populated the supporting cast with all these heavyweights. Mm-hmm. That's a double-edged sword. <laughs> because my my big, the big thing that kind of got in the way of me really loving this was that she is so outgunned uh, in, uh, in most of the acting scenes. I mean, she definitely has a, a presence. Mm-hmm. And it's clear that she becomes more comfortable with it as an actress, as she's moved forward. I mean, she's great in The Mandalorian and she brings uh, a certain 
energy and and weight and thoughtfulness uh, to a f- female character who we've never seen in Star Wars like that before. Mm-hmm. But here, I mean, she's just so green. And like anytime she had to do more than a line or two, like it just I, for me, it felt like, you know, someone kind of pulled the brakes a little bit and it did take me out of it. Yeah, I think maybe I felt that the first time I watched it. What drew me back into repeated viewings was, again, was the style of oh, this sure. in the fighting. And I think over time, I I kind of like, I don't know if acceptance is the right word, but I do think that I found those little kind of grace notes mm-hmm. in some of the performances. Because she's not really, he smartly designs it so she doesn't have to deliver a lot of Yeah, the heavy she's not exposition. doing a lot of heavy lifting at all. But And the great performance bits are in the fights. And Absolutely. in the running and how she handles, um, you know, weapons or mm-hmm. the driving sequences. Like there's a physicality there. And I think that is something that we often kind of shortchange and and put more emphasis on line delivery. Now, again, when you're going up against someone like Michael Douglas, Michael Douglas is, you know, he's Michael Douglas. Yeah. And I think that's. I think that it's that contrast. It's that, sure. you know, that she's often opposite, you know, none of the other, none of the cast besides her are, are slouches by a, a long shot. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Uh, so it just, it just stands out and it did sort of take me out of the moment where suddenly it's, it, it felt like half the screen was, you know, a much more tested and um, experienced film versus you know, where she was. Sure. And again, seeing, so this is her first acting mm-hmm. role. Yep. And then seeing her most recent. Yeah. And knowing that clearly that comfort and, and that, that confidence in, in, you know, not just her physicality, but in her voice, you know, emerges. Sure. Um, you know, I'm certainly interested in, in kind of filling in the spaces in between. I haven't seen the Fast and Furious movie that she's in. Um, but I'd like, I think seeing her, you know, maybe. She's on in the Deadpool early... as well. Right. And yeah. she didn't have a lot to do in Deadpool. She doesn't have a lot to do in Fast and the Furious. Oh. But I think that's what's great about this is that like it's for her. Absolutely. Uh, and he does kind of, even though she is green, he does kind of work with mm-hmm. her strengths. Yeah. Uh, I think that's the thing with him is like everyone wants to work with him. Sure. So I think what happens is, is like he's always going to have ringers in his movies. Um you know, his last movie had Meryl Streep and, you know, that was released direct to Netflix. You know, people are just going to continue working with him. Right. Um, But again, I think part of what makes this interesting too uh, is like we've seen with with Captain Marvel and and with the the forthcoming Black Widow and a lot of these superhero movies or, or big budget kind of Disney movies. There's all this talk about, you know, the strong female character. And I think this movie kind of gets that right in the sense that it doesn't, it earns it because every one of these characters um, underestimate her. Sure. That's the premise of the movie. They pick her as their patsy because she's like, I'm not going to do this anymore. Right. She's going to kind of quit the life. And I mean, you and McGregor and her had some sort of relationship and it becomes a very like, you know, classic, if I can't have you, no one can. Yeah. But taken to the extreme of 
we're talking about mercenaries and not just sure ex-lovers. And towards the end, Ewan McGregor even says, like, you shouldn't think of her as being a woman. That would be a mistake. Yeah. And again, it's all this underestimating of who she is and what she's capable of. Um, but I also think, like, this movie smartly knows that all this exposition and es- espionage stuff is kind of bullshit. But it's summed up succinctly in the end when Ewan McGregor says, the motive is always money. And and you don't need anything more than that. It's all a MacGuffin. And it yeah. doesn't really ever place any more importance on it than this is the thing that's got the machine started. Yeah. That's it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the ending is has a great final shot. Yep. Because, you know, we find out Banderas, Antonio Banderas' character is sort of behind everything. Uh, and he thinks he's safe and he's at home and kind of um, casually gets up and then she kind of pops up and he just says shit and it cuts the black. It's a, it's a great ending. Yeah. And it's one of those things that it feels like, oh, why haven't we gotten like 10 more of these? Mm-hmm. You know, her just action adventure sort of espionage fight movies. Wouldn't that make it a little less special though? Yeah, probably. But it's just one of those things where like the John Wick movies where a lot of times it's about how. Sure. It's I get the you. how of it. Yep. And it's exciting to see her do what she does. Because while she is maybe better at line delivery in The Mandalorian, we don't get to see her do what she does best. That's true. You know? But she does, she definitely has that presence and that intensity. Yeah. And, and that shows. And Yeah. And I do think that that, that intensity and, and, and the camera loves her. Sure. And I think you see that in this. Oh, absolutely. Um, and I, that's why I think it's had some staying power for me because I think when I put it on, I'm always like, oh man, this just feels so exciting. Yeah. And so fresh. I, I, I don't disagree with any of that. It's just, I think between its best moments, um, it just, it did just feel like suddenly it was a lesser movie. Sure. It just, it just kind of broke up the flow a bit for me. I mean, when she's when she's doing what she does best, it's, you know, firing on all cylinders. And the movie is a ton of fun to watch. Mm-hmm. The final fight sequence, too, is um, is on a beach. Uh, and it could be sunset or it could be uh, a golden hour. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure when they shot it, but it's all kind of backlit by the sun. And it's gorgeous. Um, and... Uh, it's 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 Gina Carano fighting Uma McGregor, <laughs> and it's kind of sloppy. Yeah, you know, because no one's good at running on the sand. Yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> there's no, there's so. no, there's really no like action movie gloss on this. No. Um, yeah, you feel those punches, uh, in, uh, and 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 it's all brutal. Yeah, hand to hand. The combat. exhaustion is there. The sort yeah. of the, uh, you know, the the real impact and repercussions of what they're doing to their bodies is very clearly on screen. And you could tell that he probably was looking at action movies at that time and said like, well, what do I like about action movies? And and what can I do to to make my own version of that? Because that's what, how he approaches everything. It's always about the learning. Uh, and like I said, he likes to move kind of quickly and, and, and edit while he's shooting so he knows like when he's editing that okay I've, I don't have a lot of choices because that's how I shot it um, and uh, you know those are the type of, of films that we've talked about a lot on the show is you know that's what I that appeals to me anyway yeah. I like those kind of crafted kind of 
moments. Mm-hmm. All right. So, so I did enjoy this. So what mm-hmm. would you recommend as, uh, you know, my next, my next step or, or if someone else who's listening and, and has seen this for the first time, where would you direct them from here? So I want to recommend this, um, this action movie from 2018 called the night comes for us. Uh, and this is an Indonesian movie. And it has some actors from the Raid movies. Okay. Are you familiar with the Raid at all? I know of it. I haven't seen yeah. it. Well, you should probably see that. I'll recommend the Raid. <laughs> Great. Um, but it, uh, um, this is similar in the sense that, um, you know, this is all uh, expertly choreographed uh, fights in action sequences. But this one is super, super violent. <laughs> um, so... It's that kind of cross section where it almost feels like horror. That's how gory this is. So it's kind of in that wheelhouse for me where it scratches the itch of of the horror and thriller and action kind of genre. But again, like all these sequences are are beautifully choreographed and shot. Uh, and it's by the director is Timo Tajajanto, T J A H J A N T O. So I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing that. Um, but it's a it's a pretty brutal movie. So you have to be on its wavelength, but it's similar in that sense where, you know, the violence feels shockingly real. Yeah. Uh, this one gets a lot bloodier than Haywire did. Um, what about you? Well, earlier you mentioned when she's um, doing that great foot chase through Belfast. And as soon as I saw that, I had the urge to watch Run Lola Run again, which I haven't seen in oh, a very yeah. long time. Um, so I'm going to recommend Run Lola Run. Cool. Which, um it's been a long time since I've yeah. watched that too. And it's great. And uh, I remember watching it for the first time and being very surprised and, and being like, oh, this is a video game movie. And yeah. For, if you haven't seen it, it's um, uh, uh, Lola and her boyfriend have 20 minutes to repay a, a debt to some shady characters. And the movie shows that three different ways. Um, so it's sort of uh, like a video game. Um, when Lola fails, it resets and... She tries a little bit differently to, to, uh, to achieve her objective. Uh, it's directed by Tom Tykor, mm-hmm. who worked with the Wachowskis on Cloud Atlas. Yep. Uh, and you can tell the three of them all share a lot of similar sensibilities in terms of, um, you know, playing around with reality and, and time and, um, you know, how, how one decision changes what comes afterwards. So, uh, and there's a lot of running. <laughs> through through uh through a a uh supermarket a lot of running through a quintessential european city so. mm-hmm. yeah 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 I, you know I, i'm due for a rewatch on that i remember really enjoying it when it came out and i i don't know if i watched it since i rented it once and then bought a copy in blu-ray and it's still in the shrink wrap so oh, cool come on over and <laughs> throw it on some time. sweet what are we talking about next time Next time, we're going to do something a little more recent. Uh, We are finally going to get around to seeing Succession, the HBO series. Yeah, I'm pretty excited. We typically don't talk about um, things that are currently going, super current, like, or still airing. Mm -hmm. Um, But enough people have talked about this show and talked about it in such, you know, glowing praise that it felt like something that we needed to get on board with now. Yeah. And so we might as well talk about it. Yeah. So we'll be discussing season one. Great. I look forward to it. See you then. See ya. 
Thanks for listening to another episode of What Did We Miss? You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook at What Did We Miss? And you can send us an email at whatdidwemisspod at gmail.com. And thanks, as always, to the What Cheer Writers Club in downtown Providence, Rhode Island. You can learn more about them at whatcheerclub.org. And you can follow them on Twitter and Instagram at whatcheerclub.org.